Back empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Back to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty, and rewards points, and gift cards. Go to backedbakt.com to sign up for the early access program today and start treating your digital assets just like cash. And I also want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or even earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the latest episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, and we have an episode of the show that I've been waiting for with bated breath. We have Brett Winton, Director of Research at ARK Invest, and I don't think there is a single firm, and this might sound trite at this point, that has been the poster child or the poster um, investor over the course of the dynamic market that we've experienced over the past few months, since the beginning of the year at least. And Brett's background, if you think about it, Alliance Bernstein is where you joined the firm from. And folks who are listening who are maybe more crypto native, Alliance Bernstein is probably one of the best firms out there in terms of research. And I have to sort of shill one of their more recent uh, reports on DeFi. It was really well done and, and kind of gives the rest of the street a run for their money. So this is the environment out of which Brett has come. And he's been at ARC for over seven years. And he is well known. He's the leading voice on Wall Street and a defender, it sounds, of the firm's unique approach and of their position in the market. And clearly, anyone who's listening knows about ARC, their positions in firms like Silvergate, in Grayscale's GBTC, and of course their bulwark of a co-founder and lead, Kathy Wood, who's been a defender of the crypto space for longer than most people on the street. Brett, we're really excited to have you on the show, and, and we appreciate the sort of testimony, if you will, that you just gave. I, I guess for the audience, I, I'd be keen to get a bit of background on yourself. I kind of hinted at it, alluded at it. What's your role at the firm as director of research? What does that mean? And what are you most excited about right now? Sure. So I've been director of research at ARC since inception. And, you know, in the beginning, Kathy, uh, I had worked with her at Alliance Bernstein before. So I've worked with her for something like 13 or 14 years now. But she came to me and said, well, how, what is the best way to set up portfolio management and research to directly access disruptive technology in the public markets. And the reason we were excited about that idea is because it really is a unique time in technological economic history. We think you have to go back 100 years to see this amount of technological foment occurring. 100 years ago, you had the internal combustion engine, electrification, uh, and the telephone all kind of stitching together the world at the same time. Well, today, we think this decade, you have gene sequencing and editing, adaptive robotics, neural nets, AI, uh, energy storage, particularly as it relates to mobility, uh, and of course, cryptocurrency 
all hitting critical stages of inflection over the course of this business cycle. Uh, and, and so our view was that you need to align your investment resource directly against those opportunities that are going to create what we think the most value over the course of the next decade. Right now, across all of the technology platforms that we study, we think there's roughly $14 trillion in attributable value. That includes the cryptocurrency cap and, and associated equity exposures. And we think that's going to $75 trillion by the end of 2030. And so from kind of a, an investment philosophy perspective, just to give you a sense of what that is, $75 trillion is the total global equity market cap today. Right. So across the technologies that we're focused on, we think you are going to have enterprise value of equivalent to everything across global equities. And so my job as director of research is to guide an analyst team that's focused on those technologies to effectively underwrite uh, security exposures that we believe in over five years are inefficiently priced. We have a return hurdle of 15% compounded, meaning everything we invest in, we believe is going to roughly double over five years. And to dimension kind of the cost declines, the unit economics, and the demand elasticity we anticipate in the technologies that we focus on. Uh, and so we have, as I'm sure you're aware, we put out a big ideas report every year. We try to publish all of our insights and research. We really think it's important not only that we kind of figure out the probabilistic future state of the world, but then share that information with others in the marketplace, with investors and entrepreneurs and, and venture capitalists, because information attracts information. It, it creates this reflection back of from people who are as passionate, as interested in, probably more expert than us in the technologies uh, of questions, criticisms, ideas where we could look to understand things further. And thus far, I think that's what's helped us to be kind of more adaptable to market conditions to identify companies that are mispriced and misunderstood and then deploy client assets against them. We had Eric um, Balchunas. He's, a, he's the lead ETF analyst at, at Bloomberg or, or one of their lead analysts. And it's something we talked about in the last show, which is almost the intense amount of haterade, if you will, hating, hate Gatorade, yes. something that my Zoomer sister taught me, that exists out there over ARC. There's an immense amount of jealousy. There's almost like there's this power or this fueling energy that's derived from the amount of, you know, people thinking you're dumb is what you said. Right. And how does that like fuel the business? How does that fuel sort of your day-to-day -day operations? Well, I mean, one of the things that we do differently than others is we are transparent and open about what we believe. And, and we are not only willing to, but across our analyst team, we try to aggressively put our set of beliefs out there into the world so that people can understand what the future probabilistically is likely to look like. And when you do that, there's a reason others don't do that because a lot of finance is a reputation game and people are worried about looking wrong and foolish and they are worried about looking foolish means that they don't efficiently price the assets that have a higher likelihood of having them look foolish 
Uh, and so Memorial Day of 2019 that I was being accused of committing career suicide for being long Tesla. And on the occasion of us saying, this is why we're long Tesla. This is what we think the likely trajectory of the business is when you adjust for all of like inclusive of the bankruptcy cases and the cases where it delivers on robo taxi and everything in between. And, uh, and, you know, there was an entire sea of noise pouring towards us saying, basically, you're idiots and you don't understand the way finance works. And, and a lot of it, I would say, acting in bad faith. And buried within that was some constructive criticism that allowed us to kind of improve our assessment of the future state of the world, right? And, and so when we put information out into the world, it attracts a lot of vitriol and noise and haterade, as you say. And I would much rather have that noise spewing at me verbally from people and thereby uncover things that I may have overlooked than kind of be like, I'm not going to say what I believe is going to happen in the world and then pretend that I didn't get something wrong when it turns out there was something I overlooked. So uh, for us, it's, it's really fuel for the business. I would rather hear our strongest critics and the people with the strongest arguments against us directly. And if I've, and we as an analyst team have assessed those arguments and then say, well, this is the possibility that that happens and what it means to the position within our portfolio. And this is you know, what we think the odds of that are. And given that this is what five years from now, we think the security, the expected value of the security is, then I can more readily identify assets that are mispriced. I remember, and you alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation, when Kathy and the firm came out with their very, obviously very bullish, but at the time, a sort of price target for Tesla that was often scoffed at. It was $4,000 before the split. And it was these bold claims that kind of got you on the map very much so on Wall Street a year ago, two years ago, and now make you all look very prescient. The one question that I think we think about a lot at the block is how much of that predictive force is tied to the inherent values of these firms versus the wild things we've seen in the market, right? The amount of retail activity we've seen in the market, the meme nature of the market versus some of the things I actually remember this one specific interview with Kathy where she talked about Tesla and sort of where um, Ford and all the other motor companies who were exploring battery technology were so behind. Is it the state of the market that made you guys right or sort of where these companies are positioned that sets them up for future success later down the road? Well, so our $4,000 price target at the time, right, that was a 2024 price target. So you could say that's been recognized sooner. Now, kind of adoption of electric vehicles has pulled forward. Tesla's scaling constraints have been significantly reduced. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you the answer, but we are also open sourcing a new version of the Tesla model shortly, probably over the next month, that shows what we think it's going to look like in 2025. So across the board, if you look across all of our technologies, last year, at the end of 2019, there was $7 trillion in attributable equity value. And the end of 2020, there was $14 trillion. So the, the technologies as a whole 
roughly doubled in terms of what the market valued them at. And some of that is justified, is then adoption curves were pulled forward. You know, everybody's using Zoom right now, whereas nobody was effectively a year ago. Now I I sometimes yearn for just a, a, a normal traditional conference call rather than a video call because I'm staring at my screen all day. Uh, Listen, I've been pounding the table on that for, for ages. I say, just give me a phone call, shoot me a text. You know, I want to see your face, Brett, but most of the time I don't want to see anyone's face. And so, well, I mean, part of the reason Clubhouse is taking off is because I think people are sick of staring at screens, but they still want to have human contact, right? Anyway, digress. <laughs> so, digression. A digression. So the, you can clearly say in periods of disruption, disruptive technology tends to take share. We're not going to go back to a pre-Zoom world, right? The, the business productivity that entrepreneurs have seen as a result of the economic dislocation of the coronavirus, they're not going to give it back. And so kind of the expectations for our technologies, for the technologies that we focused on, our adoption curves got pulled forward. However, if you rewind the clock to the end of 2019, Within our portfolio, we had an expectation of a five-year return north of 40%, right? Compounded. So when I was running around to potential clients being like, this is inefficiently priced, I absolutely believed it. I still believe it's tremendously inefficiently priced. So within our portfolios today, and our forecast could be wrong, but I'm saying the way in which we forecast the positions is over five years, we expect it to compound at around 20% at today's prices, meaning I am putting money to work in assets that I think are inefficiently priced. Now, I would love to be able to get in a time machine and go back last year and buy more of the equities last year at lower prices. Unfortunately, we don't have a time machine, right? And I can still say within our set of forecasts accommodating the error range in those forecasts, we try to target forecasts where we're half wrong on the downside and half wrong on the upside. I think that getting exposure to innovation is great for your overall investment exposure and that these are the technologies that matter to get exposure to. So on an individual position basis, like think about, think about Tesla and what's driving the value of Tesla in our view. A big part of it that we believe is unrecognized is whether or not they can deliver robo-taxi capability to their fleet of vehicles. Currently, even optimistic Wall Street treats Tesla as if it's an electric vehicle manufacturer that generates some you know, thousands of dollars, call it $5,000 in operating earnings per vehicle sale, if it can take its entire fleet of vehicles and turn a switch and allow them to run around doing taxi trips, that turns into ten dollars or $20,000 in operating earnings per vehicle per year. And so the whole financial model kind of unravels in a productive and capital creative way. People don't believe they're going to deliver on that. If they did, the price would be higher in our view. And a lot of our exposures within the marketplace are exposures that, yes, they've appreciated, but we have a unique call option that we think is embedded in them that we believe is inefficiently priced by traditional market participants because they don't like the uncertainty, they don't forecast over the long term, and they are uncomfortable with the way the company fits into their coverage area. So 
our analysts focus directly on the technology, whereas many traditional shops have their analysts cut up by sector. So the yeah. autom- sorry. No, yeah. So, you know, the folks that are focusing on automobiles covering the automobile industry have that blind spot. Absolutely. They live in these information bubbles. It, it, there, there really is an echo chamber. And I, I saw it back during the financial crisis, looking at how the financial analysts who were covering the financial companies kind of responded to that. They couldn't get outside of the context of the executives that they were talking to every day and the companies that were rationally motivated to tell them, oh, this isn't a big deal. Electrification of the drivetrain, it's not that important. It's just for uh, people who want to feel good about their relationship with the earth. Meanwhile, Sam Corus, who covers batteries for us, has done great work on the cost decline of batteries that we believe demonstrates that an electric vehicle will be sticker price competitive with the median internal combustion engine vehicle by 2023, meaning you'll walk into a dealership, on your left will be a Toyota Camry, on your right will be an electric vehicle that costs the same out of pocket and saves you money over time, more convenient, more performative, more modern. It would be a huge surprise if everybody still decided to stick with the old technology, given that. Because a year later, electric vehicles are going to be even cheaper, right? However, the, the, the way in which the market still expects the space to evolve is that, oh, these will come up to some niche level or minority share level and then plane off there. It, there's no way. So, we've kind of unpacked why Wall Street, Wall Street investors, other funds have been unable to sort of pick up on these trends because maybe they're a bit more siloed, maybe they're caught up in information bubbles. Why over the past two months, since the beginning of the year, really, have we been able to see or why has the retail segment of the industry uh, of the market been able to see the value where Wall Street hasn't? Or are they just aping into this stuff because of the memes? Well, I think you can, the the other side of my case for Tesla and our belief in what's going to happen in Tesla is that there are a lot of companies and technologies that we believe are misunderstood in the opposite direction. And so we've never had a more productive environment for separating the wheat from the chaff and technology, I think. Uh, so, you know, we did a lot of work on fuel cells in 2015 uh, on the cost decline and the possibility for fuel cells to penetrate um, kind of end user mobility. But I just want to interject really quickly here. Do the folks who are, you know, maybe contributing to the inflows you guys see or kind of getting on board with the same trades, do they care about the efficiency of batteries? Do they care about some of these underpinning um, tailwinds that, that you have outlined? Um, I can't speak to the marginal purchaser, right? If, if they read our research, they do. That's part of why we yeah. think it's important to educate people. You know, is the you know, marginal investor in an electric vehicle SPAC thinking about the fundamental value of that company five years from now? I doubt it because we are thinking about it and we're evaluating those securities and we're saying this seems expensive for the amount of execution risk it embeds. And there are some positions that we think are markedly undervalued. So I, I think that the does the marginal investor activity in Bitcoin matter? It does insofar as if that person is trying to get rich quick, 
and suddenly they're not getting rich quick. And so then they bail out of it. You know, that provides kind of more volatility in the price. From our perspective as an active manager, you know, volatility is our friend. So we are, I think that there are signs of misbehavior across the entire capital markets in terms of people's willingness to use leverage options to basically mechanically shrink the time horizon over which they need to realize a gain and the level of assessment that's being done on some of the exposures that are available to people. I think there are plenty of signs of that. And I, as you know, as an allocator of capital on behalf of my clients, I'm still getting exposures to assets that I think are underpriced. And in fact, sometimes materially underpriced relative to you know, other things in the marketplace. And relative to where they've come today. Yeah. Um, speaking of where we are today, ARC, the innovation fund, I think we're sitting at an AUM of $25 billion. We've seen $15 billion in inflows over the past year. ARCW has $8 billion in AUM. So we're, we're, if we add it all together, we're looking at about $60 billion of AUM. Inflows that have the street green with envy. When you hearken back on your time since the impetus of the firm, I'm sure you never would have thought you'd be in the same conversation in terms of flows as titans, or, or maybe maybe we won't use the term titan these days, but firms like BlackRock and Vanguard. Um, how do you think about that? How do you wrap your head around that? Well, I think that the market as a whole is actually still quite short innovation and perhaps unintentionally so. Imagine you, you probably own some index funds, like broad-based indexes. When you own an index fund, you own a bank branch, you own a, an internal combustion engine factory, you own freight rail assets, you own auto insurance contracts. There are a lot of those that in the event that we're right about what the future state of the world looks like, a lot of those assets will need to be materially written down. And some of them are heavy, carrying heavy debt levels. You know, there's, there's hundreds of billions of dollars in freight rail assets. Freight rail right now prices at three or four cents per ton mile and trucking prices at 12 cents a ton mile. We think EV autonomous trucks are going to deliver freight at about four cents a ton mile. So what happens to that hundreds of billions of dollars in freight assets if this eventuality occurs. It's not worth hundreds of billions of dollars anymore. And the broad exposure that people have to these fixed assets means that they need to own the platform that's going to accrue value on the other side in the event that that's the future as it plays out. Not just in equities, in fixed income as well. Who holds that debt that is uh, securitized or collateralized against that freight rail? Same investor base. Now, previously, I think that institutional investors thought, well, we can get innovation exposure by going through the private markets, right? We can invest in venture capital and that solves the problem for us. Well, the private markets, it's actually a narrow bandwidth channel by which to get appropriately sized exposure to innovation. And the asset prices get significantly more distorted as you have a lot of influence of that channel. Look at what happened with with WeWork and even Uber and Lyft as the Vision Fund was trying to ramp up into that channel. So we think providing clients with a mechanism by which to expose themselves to innovation, to really put their risk 
against innovation in appropriate positioning is exactly why these inflows have happened. And inflows to innovation in general should continue to happen. You know, and I'd love it to be us, but I think the whole market is still short and they don't really get it yet because you haven't yet begun to see some of the value destruction as it plays across these fixed asset industries. So, I, you know, I go around and talk to people about our expectations for these technologies because they are disruptive, because they are disruptive and many people have wrong way risk exposure to them that they don't even realize. If we think that half of equity market appreciation over the next five years is going to accrue to our assets uh, and our, our, the technology platforms that we're focused on, and roughly two thirds as measured over 10 years. And it could be, that's not assuming write downs of the kind of this set of fixed assets that I'm talking about. That's assuming everything else kind of goes fine and, and just our technologies proceed as we expect them to. But it could be that, you know, you actually the, the value accrual to the technology platforms we're in is very value destructive to a lot of other capital assets. Um, mm. and, and then, you know, you really have to think about your exposure. And what does a safe investment really mean? And over what time duration? That's a really relevant question, given what we've been seeing in the market over the past week. And I think it might be something that my colleague, Ryan Todd, who's listening in and is a part of this conversation, and I'm excited to bring him in. I think he might have a question related to that. I have two points, actually. Uh, so the first is, and it's a question I've had since seeing the honestly parabolic growth of inflows into the various products that you guys have. And you, and you talk about this idea that you'd hope that, you know, other people have or other competing products may, may look to allocate into quote unquote innovation. I'm wondering since some of these names that you hold tend to be lower float or just like lower, lower cap stocks in general, I'm wondering if there's a limit on the mechanical limit to how much you can actually direct into some of these names. And I guess the second part of that question would be in bouts of extreme volatility, which I wouldn't say we're really there yet. You know, are there any downsides to the rapid inflows that you guys have seen and how you've had to allocate that into the various holdings that you guys have? Well, as I said, we are allocating into inefficiently priced assets today. So the technologies that we're invested in make up something like 20% of global equity market cap. So the, you know, if we were concerned about the liquidity position in the portfolio, we would diversify the position set. There's no dearth of opportunities for us to deploy capital. For an active manager, the volatility is our friend. When people really dislike what we're doing and, and they try to aggressively talk down our book or, or short it. That provides a great opportunity for someone who has a first principles base, you know, fundamental expectation for the value of the business five years from now. Now, I think that the appropriate investor in our portfolio or any long only equity portfolio should not be somebody who is trying to generate a return measured in months. It's an inappropriate part of the capital markets in which to do that. You know, the, the equity market as a whole can be down 30% or up 30%. I think, it, I think it's 
almost unforecastable as measured over, you know, six months. If you extend your time horizon, it becomes more predictable, not less, right? If, if you give me a long enough time horizon and ask me just binary, are equities up or down? Give me a long enough time horizon, I can get that question right every single time, at least historically. And so the, I think the capital markets right now, both on the hedge fund leverage side and some of the stuff that's happening in retail options, and, and you've seen some of the results of that, presents like more near-term volatility that for us is great. It's the way we actively manage a portfolio. I think second, I'd say, I don't think it's appropriate for clients to be playing options on our strategy for or against. We're the only actively managed investor, at least in the equity markets in history, that people can actively take a direct short position against, which is, I mean, it's interesting. Be our guest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think our responsibility to our clients is to try to educate them on this, that, you know, the, the, when you're investing in equities, duration is your friend. You should be not allocating money into equities that you're trying to spend three months from now or even a year from now. And um, that some folks listening in. <laughs> You know, folks, maybe trying to get yellow bets out there. I want to. I want to get your perspective, and and maybe the perspective of the firm. If you think about the market, maybe last week, mostly late last week, the sell-off in real yields, accompanied by modest compressions in inflation, break-evens. There was, you know, concerns about some sort of temper tantrum in the bond market, and now we've even seen today, right? You know, Nasdaq's down. Arc is down. I think we ended the day down six percent. How do you think about what's going on in the market right now, and how do you position yourself for that in this sort of, you know, short-term time horizon? I think he pretty much just answered that almost. Like it's it's the same long-term mindset, not thinking in months. Well, you're always going to sort of take a long-term approach to things, but in the short term with these elements are these elements not going to be playing out in the long term is that is that sort of the mindset of the firm what are you thinking in terms of these specific macro elements that are playing out sure i mean look at what happened or look at how we managed the portfolios during the kind of march coronavirus crisis almost a year ago we went through and assessed to what degree has our five-year expectation for each of our technologies so there's 14 underlying technologies that we focus on under the five technology platforms. And then how does that feed into our expectations for the companies themselves, right? And for many companies, it actually didn't meaningfully change the five-year view. Tesla's an example. I think our net, our, our price target for Tesla moved down 5% on the basis of, actually we were too conservative, but on the basis of, of lowering factory utilization this year and lowering their selling price by this year, I mean 2020, lowering their selling price expectation and how that fed into our expectations of their ability to fund future growth, et cetera. And meanwhile, the stock was down 50% or so. Not exactly. I don't know exactly how much. But as an active manager, that's great. Actually, a large number of the market participants that we're ostensibly competing against are kind of spaghetti at the wall, um, technology ETF, uh, where if the company mentions something in its transcript, then it becomes that kind of company investment vehicles that rebalance quarterly. 
Uh, and, you know, that provides a very rich environment for us to, to manage against, I think. There is certainly uh, rate sensitivity across all of the positions that we invest in because, you know, we're literally saying we don't care about cash flow today except that you need to use it to fund growth, right? But but we really are underwriting the positions as if we are a forced seller five years from now to someone who's not a technological optimist like I am, right? As in, what is the market forced to pay for these kinds of operating earnings five years from now? But if, if your 10-year goes up or your five-year goes up, you know, five years from now becomes less valuable relative to today. Uh, and so there is you know, certainly sensitivity there. And again, I generally, if you look at how we act in the media, even, we are more cautious about advocating for the technologies that we're interested in when everybody is cheerleading us. That's not a comfortable position. I prefer us to be, as you say, hated, because that means that not only is there medium and long-term strategic opportunity, it means there's also likely tactical short-term opportunity uh, over the durations that we're interested in. And so kind of the, the degree to which our perspective is misunderstood is a sign as to whether or not there, there's really fertile opportunity for putting assets to work. Backed is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Backed puts the power in your hands to get your crypto loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send, or spend them using Backed. Get started today and get it together with Backed. Sign up for the early access program at backedbakkt.com. And I also want to take a moment to thank Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Whether it's your first trade or your 100th, Kraken has the tools to help you hit your financial goals in crypto. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week, and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. I think Ryan is thinking about moving the conversation more into the direction of crypto. Do you want to jump in here? Yeah, sure. So uh, basically, you know, one of my favorite things that the content that you guys produce is the the big ideas series that you put out. And um, obviously I think one of the benefits that I've seen from, from ARC and how you structure the research is it's really cross-functional. You have people that become innovation experts within different industries that obviously come together and share ideas and it's, it's really collaborative. And so I'm curious when you, when you kind of step back from the big ideas that you guys put out for 2021 within crypto, I'm curious what the sentiment is across some of the, the analysts at ARC, not directed towards, uh, say, Bitcoin as digital gold. I think that's been more well played out, and it's, it's a narrative that's really kind of expanded its acceptance, specifically across you know corporate treasures and, and that whole idea. Ryan, they view it like Sailor does. It's digital energy, <laughs> monetary energy. <laughs> Let's put the digital energy to the side. I'm wondering what's the temperature check among among the research at Arc on, on other big ideas within crypto that uh, your team finds interesting. Sure, I'll cover a few. Uh, even within the Bitcoin and, and digital energy space, <laughs> I think 
you know, I was thinking and talking with Yassine and Sam, who covers batteries for us, about kind of what the ideal structure for an energy market is, particularly with regards to like Texas and, and the disruption there. And you can think about like with state of the technology world before kind of batteries got sufficiently cheap and before Bitcoin became a thing, right? You basically had a set of power assets, which some of which were only operating five days out of the year because you needed to, to run the air conditioners on those five hot days, right? And so you have an entire like natural gas plant that's just dedicated to like turning on five days out of the year. Uh, so I think you can make an economic case that you would be better off actually having a, a, a Bitcoin mining operation that operates 95% of the time and then turns off 5% of the time to then supply that power to run those air conditioners on those five days out of the year. And then and that matches well with a battery system that basically responds to the daily fluctuations, high, low, high, low, to normalize power in that way. And so you like within power economics, your base load electricity is your cheapest electricity. If you can basically, if you could totally flatten the demand curve so it's so it's flat, then you could generate electricity. And if you could do it on nuclear particularly, but then you could generate electricity extremely inexpensively, right? And the part of the the challenge, particularly of renewables, is actually you introduce more demand or more supply volatility. So how do you flatten that out? That's why you pair pair it with batteries. But you also need a mechanism by which to accommodate not daily, but seasonal shortfalls. And I think that actually Bitcoin mining or proof of work mining of any kind, but Bitcoin mining, where it's an economic arbitrage element that you can turn off for as long as you need to, to accommodate an extreme um, power situation actually makes more conceptual sense. So that was one. Uh, Another thing uh, on the consumer and kind of metaverse side, we've been talking a lot about NFTs and, um, you know, what those look like, how large that market's likely to be, how it's going to operationally play out across various business models. Um, I feel like people currently understand the idea of NFTs as collectibles. So these are non-fungible tokens for those listening at home. Um, uh, You know, NFTs uh, and how that'll impact the fine art market. I also think Birkin bags are NFTs. Like the entire luxury market uh, is... Uh, effectively kind of you know a centralized luxury goods manufacturer has a social contract with its buyers not to produce too many of this shirt or this bag so that it remains valuable over time uh, as people shift more into digital spaces you can imagine that you know all of the actual physical utility of that gets stripped out and there is you know a set of official authentic Nike's that you want to be able to wear in Fortnite and everything that's built in Unreal Engine, you know, like so across the different virtual spaces. The, um, I had one more. Oh, the third, I, I think thinking about what or work that I am dissatisfied with that I haven't seen done out there, and maybe I just haven't surveyed enough of the kind of literature and writing on it, is what is the actual market value um, that you could assign to a smart contracting platform, assuming you knew which one won? Right. Like, so you mentioned the digital gold thesis. That's very easy and well understood in part because I can say, well, this is how much the market's worth now. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Bitcoin is a fraction of that, call it, you know, a 20th or whatever. And so I just have to have that 
play out. Basically, like I'm taking money that's stored in gold and stored in Bitcoin, and I can very easily see appreciation. Well, so is Ethereum inefficiently valued today relative to what should be its kind of terminal state value? I don't think that people have really demonstrated that. Well, could that be the, the aggregate market cap of all of the banks? Well, right. So then that's the question. It's like certainly the investment banking franchises. The way I think about kind of DeFi and smart contracts is that you basically are taking the structuring desk of an investment bank and where it happens inside an investment bank because they can trade with each other safely because they have like kind of both balance sheet and reputational risk by which that enforces them to stay true to the contracts that they have with each other. And you're extracting that out into a bunch of like, you know, coders and traders houses and anybody can make a structured rate contract or whatever kind of strange you know, financial concept oh, you yeah. want to come up with. They're getting right? more and more esoteric by the day. Yeah. And, and, and so then you could say, yes, maybe, but this is my question. Is it just the market cap of those investment banks? Is that how much is going to accrue to the token? Or should there be some discount to that? Like, sh- or should we back into what the, um, basically the revenue or profit generated to the investment bank from that activity is in some way. Like, I I just don't, I just wonder if there's a more nuanced way to think about how that should translate into the value of the underlying token that facilitates the activity. Because again, with Bitcoin, like the store of value thing, it's such an easy translation. Here, I can understand how the activity is going to spin up and be interesting and disruptive and probably result in a leverage cycle that just like tears the financial world to bits. Like I can understand that whole chain of things that's going to happen. And I, at least to my, haven't to my satisfaction kind of like translated it into the fundamental value of the token relative to that economic utility delivery. And and I think it's in part because like, what is the economic utility of a bank like that's a heavily disputed <laughs> function like different economies have different market cap attributed to their banking sector and it's unclear exactly is it more efficient if there's more market cap there or is it less efficient you know so there's there's a lot of it's I think, an open question to there. yeah frank and i were joking about how terrible bank stocks have been since yeah since we were even before we were even born <laughs> yeah yeah but I mean, I think that we have a whole another like area we focus on on digital wallets that I think is heavily disruptive to the retail banking franchises. You know, Cash App is now has more active user or basically more active accounts than than Chase does. But and Chase has you know millions and millions and actually billions and billions of dollars of bank branches it needs to maintain to support that that active user base, whereas Cash App has like you know some people in 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 SF like coding right like so their fixed cost basis is much lower cash app is acquiring customers at like $5 a customer and a traditional bank is acquiring customers at like $1000 a customer so it means that the cash app can underwrite financial function much less expensively to the end function and still be profitable and meanwhile those those banks like if the Chase branch down the street closed, my father-in-law would think Chase had closed, right? They're, they don't have an easy way to degrade out of the position that they're currently in. Uh, and and so I just think it's a, a real bind that they're in. Uh, and with back to crypto, I think mm. 
digital wallets, if you're in a multi-token world, that digital wallet spot becomes very valuable because people are managing exposures to all kinds of assets uh, that they need to make their life function. And so you can abstract a lot of the friction into the digital wallet itself so that for the user, it's a better experience, but it's operating on these decentralized rails and the user doesn't even necessarily need to know that. I think that in the NFT space, there's also an opportunity for kind of like I don't know if it's digital wallet, but it's basically like the endpoint device to enforce the code of kind of NFT watermarking in some way. Like right now I have an Apple watch and uh, I can't that social status differentiate with my watch anymore because it's too functional for me. So I can't buy, uh, nor would I, but even if I wanted to, I couldn't really justify buying like a $25,000 watch just to show off because the Apple watch is too functional. So what do I need? I need a you need 24 24- $24 Apple Watch. They sell those, Brett. You can get well, one I- like twenty five hundred. Yes, I know, but <laughs> that's not. It's like I need an NFT that can only be displayed on this watch if it's actually validated and authenticated, and it costs me twenty four thousand dollars. But people see it on the screen. They're like, "That is a cool watch," right? Yeah. Independent of the hardware, the software layer, uh, and and so if. In the hardware, you have some function by which, and Apple could do this without even going decentralized if they wanted to, but you have some function by that prevents you from showing the digital piece that's your thing without it being validated. Then it becomes truly social status differentiating in kind of the visual marketplace of this is, I'm showing off because I'm rich. So you could do the same with like digital frames, where if a digital frame, if people know that the digital frame can only display things that have been on whatever blockchain, like authenticated, then when they see it on your wall, they'll know you didn't just like save it off the internet. They'll know that it was something valuable. And that's really what people want with their art collections. They want, yes, they appreciate the art. They also want when their friends come over, their friend to be able to comment on it and then be, be able to say, oh, well, I got it at this great primary auction and it's now worth 6x more, blah, blah, blah. I, I was going to say, I'm sorry that I'm going to pivot the conversation away from NFTs because I know Ryan has been pounding the table on 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 us getting like seven or 15 guests on the show a week to talk about NFTs. But I want to get your opinion before we close out the conversation on what what I'm most excited about, frankly, um, which is the upcoming debut of, of Coinbase. We have reports, we've reported on a valuation at about $100 billion if, you, if you sort of look at the, the secondary market trading. What do you think of that valuation? Is it fair and, and, and is this a, a stock you guys are going to look to scoop up in some of your funds? Well, I will defer on disclosing what I think about that valuation. I'd say we're still doing work on it. I think one of the challenges with Coinbase, I think, is that a large proportion of their revenue is generated from basically retail's trade of retail customers trading, which I see as kind of unhealthy behavior and activity. Mm. Um, and I think the the interesting part of their business is much less revenue accretive, which is kind of like the institutional facilitation of exposure to Bitcoin custody, et cetera. And that's what they're they're focused on. And so there's I think at I think Coinbase's strategy has probably deviated a few times in its customer journey. During the ICO boom, their whole thing was we're gonna let a thousand cryptos bloom. 
And we're going to facilitate people to pair trade between all these thousands of cryptos. And I just don't think that's the right concept for how the market's going to evolve. And so insofar as kind of their business model is still dependent upon that kind of behavior, it leaves me with a feeling of discomfort. Now, it could be worth uh, $100 billion. And with, with new entrants too, right? Yes. You, you mentioned Square. It's funny, like they Square might have more Bitcoin monthly actives now than, than Coinbase, which is wild. And, and, and we saw Robinhood's numbers as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's the possibility, like Square has strategically interesting things they can do with their digital wallet. Like they can use Bitcoin as a mechanism by which to penetrate emerging markets before they have some of the backend infrastructure set up for fiat peer-to-peer payments. And so you could imagine them using it as a mechanism by which to deliver the cash app to all these different markets, go after international remittances in some way. Like there's a lot of interesting things they could do. I think that the it's less clear to me how valuable an exchange really turns out to be, uh, particularly when your marginal competitors, decentralized exchanges and kind of gray market exchanges that aren't doing KYC. And it's just a really I would say, fluid competitive landscape where most of their revenue is being generated. There's a, I think they have a lot of credibility uh, institutionally and kind of on the custody side and doing prime brokerage for clients is probably an interesting business for them. But we haven't done kind of the full valuation work that we need to, to, to understand, you know, at what price we'd be willing to pay and, and how aggressive a position we'd want to take at this point. Well, when you get it, you're going to come back on the show and break it all down for us, Brett. Uh, <laughs> you making the time. Hope to have you on again soon. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks very much. 